hang in a fight that come on a hippie trail head full of zombies. I met a strange lady, she made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. She said, Do you come from a land down under? A women go This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, Silver Lake, somewhere in Western Los Angeles. Oro was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to create a treatment center that treats addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control and they have decades and decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders including severe mental illness they have amenities you wouldn't believe sound bath meditation fucking equine therapy fucking the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge so much more we've only heard amazing things about oro they make sure your detox is super comfortable which is critical when kicking hard drugs so if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny southern california to get well i cannot suggest oro enough hey guys i want to tell you about one of my favorite sponsors sober buddy since it's super available to you if you need some help with your sobriety. It's the little blue fluffy guy you may have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. You can either use their free service called Sober Buddy Mail, which is a daily email with bite-sized sober challenges plus motivation and tips that are super helpful, or you can download the Your Sober Buddy app, which is an interactive version that shifts your challenges and motivation based on how you respond to it. The app also has a sober tracker that's down to the second and daily check-ins from Buddy, where he asks you how you're feeling and if you're sober, and then gives you advice based on your mood. Right now, Sober Buddy has helped over 30,000 people using their app to get sober, and I know there's been a ton of dopey people who are using it and loving it too. If you're interested, check them out at YourSoberBuddy.com. You can see all of their services there. It is so nice to have free and super inexpensive resources out there for everyone now to help with their sobriety. It's been a long time coming. Again, that's YourSoberBuddy.com if you are interested, and thank you. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Evolution Accounting and Consulting. They are a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business need you may have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. Perhaps more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. 
Fortunately, he's been in recovery for a few years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Use promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. Please support Evolution Accounting. We love them on Dopey. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. It's a very special episode of Dopey. Although, to me, they are all incredibly special episodes of Dopey. I am recording this right now in a place that I've never recorded anything before. It's a place that I've never been to. We're in a, or I'm in, an Airbnb in Barryville, New York. I don't know if you guys know where that is. It's near the Delaware River. My family is off in Pennsylvania visiting friends, and I am working in the Airbnb. And it's kind of luxurious and interesting. There's like this rushing, kind of very active stream right next to us. We're right off a road. It's a little creepy, but it's also like, it's nice. It's like I can imagine having a studio and like, you know, not in the guest room of my house where I hear my kids and Linda running up and down the stairs, but like, maybe a place where dopey exists outside of the family and, and the workplace and my dad's house. What a dream. I don't think it would be in Barryville though. I, I don't know. Like I'm always torn on it. If it should be in Sayville or in Manhattan, but, uh, in Manhattan, you can get guests in person In Sayville. You are in the comfort of your own world. Howie's willing to go to Sayville, but he's not so willing to go to Manhattan. I don't know. Stuff will change. But before we get to this exciting episode, you guys should know about Dopey Zoom. If you don't know about Dopey Zoom, what you should know is it's a universe of dopes coming together to be together. Are you a Dopey listener? Are you curious about Dopey Zoom? Because Dopey Zoom is there for you. As they like to say themselves, they hit recovery hard and the butt plugs harder. I don't know if that's a a tagline that's going to draw people to Dopey Zoom, but they do NA, they do AA, they do Dharma, they uh, they have fun. There's marathons and speakers and and you know it's it's this amazing virtual space that people get a lot out of recovery and make friends and have fun so please check out dopey zoom the id is always 804-300-586 the password is always toodles lowercase i will post more dopey zoom information on instagram and facebook but join the dopey zoom uh it makes me happy when people actually do it also we have a uh, dopey Patreon Zoom, I think Saturday night. Fuck, crazy. Saturday night, dopey Patreon Zoom. So come out if you're a member of Patreon. Support Patreon. So much good shit on there. I'm about to put bonus material from last week's Confessions of a Fentanyl Dealer on Patreon. So uh, please join. Also, subscribe to Dopey YouTube. Subscribe to Dopey YouTube right now. Stop for a second and go subscribe. There's so much shit on Dopey YouTube. You will you will can't believe what you've been missing. I'm going to tell you guys a very controversial story right now. Are you ready? It questions the fabric of sobriety and the next right thing to the core. And maybe I'm going to get a little bit too personal right now, but I haven't told a story in a while, so I'm going to tell the story. All right. 
me and my family went to one of my favorite places last week, the Bronx Zoo, for winter break on Tuesday. And uh, I love the Bronx Zoo. I, I don't know what your opinions on zoos are. It was, it was, listen, I always love going to the Bronx Zoo. It gives me that Jurassic Park feeling of going to this incredibly exciting place with wildlife. But once I see the animals, I kind of get depressed because they're pacing and neurotic and look like they're going to kill themselves because they're so bored and captive and whatever. And I like to believe that the New York Zoological Society actually helps preserve animals and does good things like they they regenerated the the bison population in North America. And I'm sure all you drug addicts are dying to know about this stuff. But, you know, a lot of people gave us shit for last week's show around the fentanyl dealer. It's like, I swear to God, I can't do anything right. It's either too dopey, not dopey enough. So now I'm going to tell you about my zoo story and you can tell me, we want to hear about fentanyl dealing. Anyway, so we go to the zoo and when you go, we, we had Googled it and they said you didn't need to have your kids vaccinated if they're under 11. And yeah, we were going to lie. Nora just turned 12. We were going to lie and say she was still 11 and get in. But because Linda and I are vaccinated, the kids aren't. And it turned out you need to be vaccinated if you're over five to go to the uh, indoor exhibitions. So we're walking around and we're kind of avoiding the indoor exhibitions. We saw the tigers, um, which are amazing, just giant tigers. So cool. And then we saw the snow leopards, which, you know, they looked kind of bored, but also pretty amazing. And then uh, we get to Asia which if you've ever been to the Bronx Zoo is a very exciting place. It's more exciting in the spring because they have uh, Wild Asia, which is the safari, the monorail. Everyone, lo everyone loves the monorail, especially me. But they also have Jungle World in Wild Asia. And I went, my dad took me to the Jungle World opening in like 1987. So I have this great like kind of feeling about Jungle World, like it has something to do with me. And it's basically an indoor rainforest. It is, uh, I still like it. It's limited in its capacity because how big can a rainforest be if it's indoors, right? Anyway, we only have two bracelets. We have four of us. Susan's young enough to get in. So me being the shystery sort of drug addict that I am, I rip my bracelet off and I give it to Nora. She goes in and, um, and they don't question it because, you know, they actually, what they do is, and I watch this, they, they saw that her bracelet was broken. So they give her a new bracelet. And that's when I get my devious idea. And uh, I let a couple families go in and then I go up to them and I said, uh, can I go in? And they wanted to see my membership, which I had, uh, thanks to my father. He's been a member of the zoological society for like 50 years or something. So then they asked me, uh, where's my vaccine bracelet? And I said, oh, uh, it must've, it must've broken off, you know, which was a half truth. Cause I broke it off and I gave it to my kid, which was totally the wrong thing. And they asked me for my vaccine, right? information and I gave it to them and they gave me a new bracelet like I knew they would. And I went in and I caught up with the family and my daughter was just beaming at me that I was so slick that I could pull this off. And it was like kind of the, you know, and I hate to say this, but sort of like the addict superpower, the manipulator superpower, the, the willingness to do the wrong thing to get the good results, which is you know, it's one of those things. 
I, I was beaming with pride that I had pulled it off. And, and I've had a few episodes like this with my family where I've done the kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, dope fiend move. And I dope fiended myself into jungle world with the family. Now, Nora obviously didn't have COVID and, uh, and hopefully nothing, you know, no leopards got COVID and no like tourists got COVID and whatever it worked out. But that is my, my dope fiend experience. And then like, it's, it's fucked up because I take so much pleasure in, I, I don't know. I took pleasure in getting away with this. I took pleasure in being able to dope fiend my way into jungle world. And in the back of my head, I knew it wasn't necessarily the next right thing, but, um, I would love your guys' opinion on that. Does that mean anything? Write an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I appreciate that. And, um, I'm really excited about this guest. I have been a fan of Colin Hay and Men at Work since I was a little kid, which I told him. And here he is from the land down under, Colin Hay. When I was 12, I bought the first two tapes I bought was Men at Work, Business as Usual, and Men at Work, Cargo. They were my first two tapes, and you were my favorite band uh, growing up in New York City. So I want to thank wow, you guys. Wow, so you bought, them, you bought them both at the same time? Yes. Wow, that's impressive. With your own money. I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't say that it was my money or, or parents' yeah. money, but I can say yeah. for some reason... Your song, It's a Mistake, like was yeah. my theme song for my entire childhood. Yeah, that's, I like that one. I like that tune. I still like that one. Well, I still like them all, but I, I think that's a good tune, that one. I think... Um, uh, I, had a, I, um, I had a fire in my house um, many years ago, uh, 20, 20, I don't know. 25 years ago or something in the house that I'm living in now and um, I was and there was flames coming out of the, the top of the house and I called the fire brigade it was a very serious fire and um, they came and the, the spyman walks down the walks down the long driveway with with this big hose and he's standing there and there's fucking flames coming out of the coming out of the chimney and he looked at me and he said you know that was the first album I bought with my own money. I said, that's very nice. I said, do you think you could put that fucking fight out? <laughs> did he make you sing It's a Mistake when that happened? No, he did I, not do that. I was sure that's where the story was going. You're like, yeah, it's a fire, no, but it's a mistake. No, I, no, I wasn't going anywhere, really. It was just the fact that, you know, he was. He would rather tell me about the fact that... Um, that was my album was the first album we bought rather than put the very obvious fire out that was raging in the house. Yes. But he did eventually put it out. Although it was a much more serious fire than he first imagined. But that's, um, you know, that's, that's a long time ago now. Well, I think your, I think your talent is like 
pretty pretty heavy duty. I have to say it. Like I, I don't usually get such talented guests on the show or people that I revere so much. Like your style, your singing, your playing, your songwriting. It's I just <laughs> love usually, it. You usually yeah, get just, people on the on yeah. the show that you they go, well, you know, he's all right. Yeah, it's all right. Him leave, take him or leave him. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, like, it's a personal thing. And I just want I want to make sure you understand that before we get into all the trials and tribulations of addiction and recovery. And I understand. Dumb shit. I, okay. I understand that. And I and uh, and thank you very much. I appreciate that very much. And I do appreciate it very much. You're welcome. And you're fr- you were born in Scotland and your and your dad ran a music store. Uh, were you, was yeah. it a hippie scene? Did it come? Did you come up in like a hippie kind of thing or no? No, no, not at all. No, my, my mother and father were quite um, quite traditional in many ways, not hippies at all. Uh, it was a bit before, it was in the 60s, so my, and my father was in his, I guess my father was, uh, was in his 40s then. So no, my father was very much a, a suit and tie guy, you know, and um, he was always immaculately dressed, very, very well presented, had beautiful hands and really nice nails. You know, he was manicured before really, you know, before I really knew how to say that word. But he was, um, he was a lovely man. And, you know, he had a lot of, he had kind of some darkness to him, you know, but, um, but I think about both my mother and father now and I, like we were talking, we were talking before. I really knew, I really sensed that I would be unprepared for their passing, and um, I was correct. You know, I, 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 I just thought, oh, you know, when they go, you know, what, what will be the point? You know, and, and I, I always thought that I would be, um, you know, have a lot, after they went, I thought I would have a lot of fear about just still being around, you know. And, um, but uh, I still feel quite protected by them, even although they've both gone. You know, they were very, they were very um, supportive people in many ways. I feel like I, I got off to a pretty good start. That's what I'm trying to say, I suppose. You know, I, I, I still draw on that. You know, I draw from the, from the fact that when I was, you know, from, from when I was born until I left home, I never really questioned my mother and father's um, support of, of, of me and what I was doing, you know. Well, in the um, film, they seem super loving and lovely uh, in the documentary about you. Um, could, they, could they play music? And, like, was it how quickly my, did you know? My, that- my, my father was, a, he was, a, he was on stage when he was young. He was a singer and a dancer, very good singer. And my mother could sing too, so there was music was kind of. I was surrounded by it when I was growing up, basically. You know, I, they had the shop, and so there were guitars and pianos and drums and records, of course. And uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, I was I I was lucky because I never really consciously thought about what I was going to do with my life. It was. Uh, it was just there, like a path in front of me that I that I walked down, you know, and and everything everything that I did was in service to that in a way, you know. I just thought, well, that that'll be what I'll do, you know, at some point, get that together. So I just started 
you know, moving in that direction. How fast could you be competent as a, a guitar player and a songwriter? Well, I'm still working on the guitar playing. And I think the it's pretty good. Really. Oh, come on. No, well, you know, you, I go online and I look at people playing and I just go, my God, they're magnificent, you know. So, But I suppose um, you hit different with, with learning anything. You kind of learn stuff and then it doesn't all just go in one in one line, you know, you kind of, you learn stuff and then you get to a plateau and then you kind of go, well, I need to learn some more things and you go in different directions. But I guess learning the F chord is pretty important, you know, like House of the Rising Sun, for example, you know, like when you're, when you're doing, um, and you get to the F chord, you have to put two. You have to put your finger over two strings. Sure. So that's quite hard. When you can do that, you figure your you figure your you're off to on a your good way. start. Right. You're on your way. So that yeah. that probably takes you know a few months to do that. I reckon a couple of years when you've been playing for a couple of years, you can play a few you know a good few chords and that. But I've been play, playing for a long time, and um, I should be better than what I am, but. I'm I'm um, I love I love the guitar I love playing it I love I love playing it more now than I actually used to so I'm kind of trying to learn more things now and looking at books and learning bits of course you know you can there's so much you can do now with um, with what's on the internet so there's no there's no excuse you know for not um, for not playing and getting somewhere with it. Well, I think the music, your, your music is much more heavily reliant on acoustic guitar playing. So you must have to be figuring out like how to make, you know, serve the music, but you've been doing it for so long with the acoustic guitar. Have you seen this kid, Billy Strings? Billy Strings, I have not. I'm Check him out. Okay. He's like, he's this kid and he's like a bluegrass kid, but he can play everything and just backwards and forwards, up and down, lightning fast. And he has this sort of buoyancy about him. I think you get a kick out of it. So look him up after All the right. interview. I, I will. think you'll get a kick out of him. When did um like did drinking come first or did weed come first or what was your thing? Let me think. Uh, a weed was the first thing. Pot. How old? I was quite old, really. Um, I was uh, I was quite straight when I grew when I was growing up. You know, f for the first. 20 years of my life, I was I was quite, didn't do anything really, drink or take drugs. Yeah, till I was about 20. Uh, and then I, I discovered weed and I really liked it because I found it to be quite a creative drug. It kind of, it, it kind of opened doors and I loved playing the guitar and writing songs when I was, when I was high on weed, you know. Were you fantasizing about like the Beatles or Bob Dylan and you were like, I can be like them and then get in that mind state kind of thing? Yeah, I'm still like that. You know, I'm yeah. still like tr still trying to make rubber soul, you know. And I remember my girlfriend and I had some land uh, in southern New South Wales. And I thought, well I can settle down here quite nicely and write some songs and, you know, go swimming and but I thought I'll probably never meet Bob Dylan if I do if I do that. So I ambition got the better of me and I, I came to live here. I mean I still haven't met Bob Dylan, but that's not the point. You never met um, Bob Dylan? No. Have you? Not yet. I work in a very famous deli in Manhattan in New York City at Katz's Deli. Have you ever been there? 
Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Bob Dylan painted a picture of Katz's five years ago, like this incredible painting of right. Katz's. And who knows why? I've never seen him. I, I really, I mean, but you, you play in Ringo Starr's band. You play in, in this very highfalutin rock and roll <coughs> world. Yeah. You, you had a, you won a Grammy. You, you're, you're a big rock star. I'm a, a lowly podcaster deli worker. So you're yeah. meeting Bob Dylan is way more likely than me meeting Bob Dylan. You'd think so. Yeah. But no, I haven't. No, no. I had a, I had a, uh, I've only had a dream about him, which was almost could be even better. You never know. What was the dream? I was driving down the PCH uh, here in here in California, Pacific Coast Highway, and my car broke down, and um, I pulled over to the side of the road, and uh, I got out of the car and I opened up the, the hood to have a look, and um, I don't know anything about cars, so that was the extent of what I could do—just opening the hood, and then I, that's it. I'm flummoxed, and a car pulled up behind me, and I looked and I thought, "Wow, it's Bob Dylan," and Bob Dylan. <laughs> You know, came over and walked straight past me and started started looking inside the engine. You know, and um, kind of muttering to himself. And I hadn't I hadn't even met him. You know, and and then he was bending over looking in the engine. And so his jeans were he was his jeans were you know he was coming out of his jeans. I could see the crack of his bum. Yes, which was really kind of weird because um, I'd never met him. I still haven't been introduced to him. But I, but I was looking at his crack of his bum. Yes. And so then he stood up and just walked straight past me and said, um, call AAA. <laughs> and got, got in his car and drove off. And I noticed that in his car, he had a mannequin in the, in the passenger seat. And I thought, well, that's a very good way to, very clever way, Bob, to, um, to get to use the carpool lane. Yes. And then I woke up. Amazing. Amazing how his voice went from the old man to that spooky, devilly voice, right? It's amazing. Bob Dylan's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, you're one of my all-time favorites, too. When, when all of this success happened for you and Men at Work and uh, Down Under and Who Can It Be Now, or, or, you know, all these songs are, are gigantic songs that sweep the world. Like, what is that experience like for you? It was... Uh incredible just incredible um you know you can feel it happening and you can feel it happening you can almost feel it happening before it happens like when my band formed and we were starting to play to bigger audiences i kind of sensed what was going to happen just because of the fact that we would draw these big crowds but we didn't even have a record you know we had no record deal but people really felt something from us and, and got something from us when they would come and see us play. So I felt like we had, you know, we had something uh, to offer. And we were very ambitious. You know, we didn't want to just be a national band. We wanted to have international success and and it happened. And so um, it was really quite marvelous in many ways. Uh, the only thing about it was that when that was happening, uh, the band was kind of starting to even come apart even then, you know. It, well, in the it beginning, it, you felt that? Well, not not the beginning, but 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 really it was a very short-lived band, you know. We start, we formed in 79, and by the end of 1983, it was done, you know, pretty much. Colin, um, what's that sound? Is that like a dryer going around? What is that? You want me to stop that? Yeah. I thought that would be unnoticeable, uh, but... Um, 
the studio, um, my studio is also, it's called the washroom because also has a laundry and a laundromat in it. Are you impressed and, um, with my eagle ears knowing that it's a dryer? No, nah, well, it's pretty good, but I don't know what else, you, I don't know what else it could be. <laughs> Me and my wife are coming to see you in Patchog in March. We're very excited. In What's New the York. name of the place? Uh, I don't oh, know. I think I'm the Patchogue Theater. It's in eastern Long Island. I'll bring you a pastrami sandwich from Katz's. So we're talking about the beginning of Men at Work, and you were saying the first thing you said was how you could sense greatness. And I, I can understand that because the music was so yeah. great and the songs were so good. I, could, I would imagine believing in myself in that situation too. And then you were talking about how the band broke up so quickly, um, which is a shame. Was, did it disturb you back then? The end of the band? No, because it wasn't really the band that I wanted to be in anymore. You know, it turned into something else. So, um, I mean, there's always a certain amount of sadness because I wanted to be in a great band. You know, I figured I got pretty close, you know, to being. And I think that we, I think we were a great band. But to me, the great bands are the ones that can actually. There might be tension within the. There might be tension and, you know, disharmony within the band, but there's a soul there, you know, and there's a common good and you keep keep it going and, and uh, grow together and all that kind of stuff. That's not really what happened with this particular group of people that was that was in that band, you know. Everyone had their own um, talent, you know, that I was just, I was talking about this to some, with somebody else a while ago and, um, you know, Greg had his own sound. I remember when I met Greg, I met him before he started playing the saxophone and then I'd go and visit him and he, when he was practicing his saxophone, he had such a great sound, and it, it sounded like my voice to me. Yeah. And uh, and so that was a really that was a really a thing that I realized straight you know before I, Men at Work even existed. I thought, well, that's that's an interesting sound that Greg's got, and he played the flute as well, of course, and played guitar and keyboards also. But the saxophone, he had his own thing, you know. And so did Ron, the guitar player. He had his own sound as well, and he was a very gifted and, and, and inspiring person to work with. And Jerry was uh, a great drummer. You know, he was very influenced. He loved Phil Collins and stuff like that. But you know, in his own right, he was a, you know, he was a great drummer to play with. Uh, we had this manager uh, who was my friend, and uh, a couple of the guys in the band wanted to sack him. You know, and uh, I didn't want to sack him because he was my friend. So. That's where the problem started was was basically, you know, not having a manager that understood that he was actually responsible for keeping the thing together. <laughs> right. You know, he only really cared about me and nobody right. else. And so I guess people realized that probably. Right. <clears throat> anyway, it's... Uh, you know, it was uh, by the time it by the time it started to fall apart, I didn't really want to be in that band anymore. So I was quite happy that we made, we made one other album, but that kind of that didn't really do much and then it was done and then I was quite happy to be on my own because to be on my own I think was my natural well it was my natural game you know the band thing was was something that did really well but um I feel quite comfortable being on my own you know sure when did um like obviously eventually you felt like getting into recovery was going to be something you had to do when did you feel like alcoholism or addiction was rearing its head at all well almost when i first started to drink i i realized i was an alcoholic <laughs> which is not really 
what a thing you want to really discover when you first start when you first start drinking. You want, I mean, you want to get, you know, you want to get at least thirty or thirty-five years of heavy drinking behind you before you sure. realize that. Yeah, I realized pretty much straight away because I liked it so much and I always wanted to keep going. And um, if I didn't have alcohol, nothing else seemed to be a problem. You know, I'd kind of given up the pot because it was bad for my lungs. And your voice. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, had, I was asthmatic and stuff, you know, but the alcohol was, that was tough. So I guess to answer your question, I first started to try and stop around 1985. And I'd really only started to drink kind of heavily from about 1977, 1978 on. So I really only had, you know, 10 years tops of of or 10 or 15 years, actually, about 15 years of heavy drinking before I stopped. In 1985, I tried to stop. And I would, I'm quite strong-willed, you know, so I would, I would try and prove to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic by stopping, you know, for like five or six months. Uh, and then I, I would do that, you know, and I'd go, fuck you all, right? You can, you can, you know, you can stop whenever you like. And, um, and then I would start again. I would just go, okay, I'll just have, I shall only drink with food. Or I'll drink after, I shall only drink after five. I shall only drink clear spirits. <laughs> so I would try all these different classic, yeah, ways of kind of, um, and eventually, and, and, and of course, you know yourself probably that it was so stressful monitoring my drinking. You know, it was like, you know, you'd, you'd pick up the sod every day and go to battle. And and you'd win, but by the end of the day, you were exhausted, you know. And so then I thought to myself, oh, okay, it's not about using my will to stop. It's about not using my will. And I just had that realization, <clears throat> you know, before I went to meetings and stuff. <clears throat> but I realized that it was about being willless in a way and just not picking up the sword. Sure, surrender, and, giving up your will. Yeah. Yes, surrendering and going, I can't beat this. You know, and then I started to go to meetings and, and I started to um, do other things like meditation and go to meditation classes and kind of try and, try and find out about that. Because I was still playing in pubs and bars, and so alcohol was surrounding me. And I would fall on and off the wagon. You know, I had lots of periods during, from, from 1985 to 1991 when I finally started stopped drinking. I had many periods where um, where I would stop for a few months, then I'd get back on it and, you know, fall off again, get back on. But, um, oh, every time I would I would start again, it was it was easier to, to stop again. I thought, okay, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give myself a hammering. I wouldn't kind of really, really get down on myself. I'd go, okay, well, this happened. Uh, you got to, you know, figure out another way to do it or get some more help or have another approach, but but by the time I finally did stop, it was a it was a short step. You know, it wasn't like this massive thing I had to do because I kind of had built up a lot of, kind of, I suppose, strength through that surrender. You know, of going well, I just have to stop. You know, and and I wanted to stop. That was the key thing for me. Was that it wasn't like somebody was telling me I had to stop. You know, I always. I always wanted to, and I think that's a makes a big difference, you know, in your in your in your recovery is just being able to go. Okay, I'm not gonna, because I love to drink. I mean, a lot of people do, you know. I loved it, you know. If I could have got, if I could have 
gotten away with, you know, sure. keeping drinking, I would have. But I just knew, oh, this is, it was too dark. It was getting too dark and too too depressing and too, um, the hangovers were horrendous and and all those things you know about. So um, so by the time I finally stopped in 91, it was a short step. But I, I was, uh, you know, I was of the opinion that, you know, fighting your addiction was like in a boxing ring where you very rarely just knock somebody out with one punch. You know, it's always a combination of things, you know. And so I was using meditation and I was, I, I was, I, I would go to meetings and I would, you know, have a, have a, a, a varied approach to try and not succumb again, you know. And I went to um, an acupuncturist here in Culver City, this woman, and she was, she was fantastic. Trin Lee, her name was. And I walked into her office, and she'd never seen me before. She'd never, I'd never met her. I just walked in, and she said, Oh, you come to me just in time. I said, Oh. She said, uh, No more alcohol cocaine for you. Mm. She said, You are a strong man, but not now. You're a sexy man, but not now. <laughs> she said, I help you. I give you a needle, make you feel calm. She said, But you make a commitment to me. You have, you have, you know, have alcohol cocaine. You have alcohol. You have alcohol cocaine. You no come and see me no more. So I went to her for twice a week for about eight weeks, and I found that and had acupuncture, and I found that to be fantastic. It really, it really made me feel like I didn't want to get you know outside my own skin. It's funny. Um, I feel like a lot of your your biggest songs are are so kind of immersed in the alcoholic experience of like paranoia, like overkill, yeah. and who can it be Over, now? It's especially right? overkill. Yeah, that's overkill such an was... alcoholic song. Um, yeah. When when you're writing it and when you're dealing with it, did you realize it at the time, or was it just the human condition until you recognize how alcoholism worked? It was two things. It was it was it was really um, at that particular time when I came up with that song, the band was about to nothing was going to be the same anymore because we were becoming very successful, very, very successful. And I thought, OK, I can't walk down these streets anymore. Well, I can, but not in the same way. Everything is going to change now. So it's like I have to dive into the unknown. And you have to go. Okay, am I prepared to do that? Do I really? Do I? Do I want this? This you know, fame and fortune, the thing that I, that I've been dreaming about for the last fifteen or twenty years. Is this something that I really want? And if it is, well, I'm gonna. I have to dive in. Dive in the deep end. So that was one thing that was going on. And the other thing that was going on was that I really could sense that I was in trouble with alcohol. So I was scared, and I was thinking, well. Am I really, am I up for this, you know, because this, this could destroy me. <laughs> meaning the, meaning the alcohol. Yeah. Or the fame, the success could destroy you because you have access to this much money and this much alcohol and Coke or whatever. Yeah. Just the fact that, yeah, just the fact that I'd get, you know, I would get so out of control. That, that was that, that was just what was going on at that particular time but I think that in many ways the the the, the fact that it was a kind of an alcoholic song was still a little bit hidden from me at that particular time when I wrote it it was really mainly in retrospect I thought oh this is this is all about this is all about the, <laughs> the darkness of the darkness of, of of alcoholism this is that's Classic. exactly what this is you know especially when you play it acoustic 
and you sing <laughs> yeah. it in that voice of total recovery. Yeah. It's like it couldn't be. And I think that's why it resonated so with so many people. Like when you when you kind of relaunched your career at Largo and, and all these kind of entertainment people are hearing you, you touch their souls in that way. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. so it's such a connection song. How bad yeah, was well, the whatever your, and and you know whatever your ghosts happen to be, you know everyone has everyone has everyone has darkness and ghosts that seem to that uh, that are, that pop up from time to time. Uh, it can be about addiction, but it can be a lot about a lot of other things as well. It can be about abuse. It can be about you know many many other things that that appear in people's lives and, and keep and keep reoccurring. You know. Sadness, loss, totally, yeah. absolutely. Um, how bad was the coke during the heyday? What would give us a sp- like a snapshot of the heyday, like being like an alcoholic, drug addict, you know, number one artist in the world? Like, well, I think I suppose when I would come off stage um, with men at work, and when we were when we were at our peak, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't be I wouldn't be drinking, you know, during the show. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be drunk during the show. Um, but I would come off the stage, and the stage manager, my friend, would have a line there of cocaine, and I would do that, you know, just one, you know, bang, and he would give me a shot of ice cold absolute or stolly or something, and I would. I would whack that down quickly, you know, just boom boom, and then I would go back on and do the encore. And like halfway through the song that we would go on and play, it would all it would hit. And at that point, the world was a rosy place. And then you're just from that point on, you're trying to get back there and you never do. Well, that's gotta be like the greatest place. One shot, one line encoring in that's the greatest right. band. Right? That's what was right. the that encore? Was Oh, whatever we were playing, Be Good Johnny, and It's a Mistake, yeah. I think, something like yeah, that, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, that but, has to you know, be the best place. Yeah, that was, and that was, um, I mean, that was glorious, you know, and there's no, no two ways about it. But afterwards was not. When, you've need, when you need to get up at, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning and it's 6 o'clock and you're thinking, oh, it's okay, I can still get a couple of hours sleep, you know? <laughs> but as far as cocaine is concerned, um, that was a, that was a a function of alcohol. You know, I never did cocaine when I wasn't drinking. That was just that was the do- alcohol opens the door to ever to that. You know, I've never used heroin. Uh, all my a lot of my friends did. I was very frightened of heroin, and um, you know, I, it's not not for me. But the alcohol was really the thing. I was a terrible heroin addict. Uh, was there a was there a lot of hallucinogens in the early days of Men at Work? Was there like a, a psychedelic moment in your in your life? Because there seems it feels yeah, a little psychedelic yeah. in there. Yeah, the psychedelic thing was well, the psychedelic thing for me was was uh, was pretty good, I have to say, because uh, there wasn't much of it. You know, there was there was a period there with um, with my dear friends, with Gregory, with Greg, and with another friend of mine, Kim, who's still my friend, and and down in Melbourne. There was some uh, some acid involved and some mushrooms for a period for a period of time, and that you know blows your mind in in, sure. in in the true sense. You know, I mean, you're sitting looking at a tree and you're becoming aware of its molecular structure, and you think, wow, you know, this is there's there's things there's things going on here that I can only guess at. You know, and um, 
one of the, I, th- I suppose the thing that 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 left me with was that I don't I I don't really feel separate from anything, and that was one of the other things that really when I finally gave up drinking in, in 91, I mean, I, I actually came to live in California. One of the reasons I came here was to run away from from Melbourne because, and, and, and you know yourself, just changing your geography doesn't really work in itself, but it can help when you don't have, um, when you're not walking in your old footsteps and you don't have friends around that just don't want you to stop because, you know, if you stop, well, what are they going to do, you know? And um, so I remember sitting out the backyard here, just where, where I live now, and um, I just stood, I had, I'd done a bit of, uh, a little bit of meditation. I was sitting and I stood up and my feet were on the ground and I put my arms up into the air and I, and I just, and so I could touch, the, so I was imagining I was touching the sky and I felt plugged in. I just felt, I felt like I was plugged in and, um, and that's the feeling that um, that I like to feel like I'm I'm just part of everything, you know. I'm uh, I have a function. I feel useful most of the time, you know. I go out on the road and I, you know it's it's a sounds like a small thing, but it does. It makes you feel useful, like you're a, you're a cog, you know. You're a, you're part of the, you're part of the universal machinery, you know. Totally. It's amazing, though, the way those kinds of psychedelic experiences can, like, inform a recovery experience of a meditation or a feeling connected to the other people that are around you. Like, I love that. And all these people now are doing psychedelics in recovery willy nilly. I'm sure, like, in California, it's I mean, where I live, there's not many, like, weird, like, blue collar Long Islanders taking ayahuasca. But in, I'm hearing yeah. a lot of like crazy California microdosing psilocybin and ayahuasca and all this. Absolutely, yeah. My yeah. a lot of my friends are microdosing, and as a matter of fact, I was hearing uh, some people across the just across the canyon from me, you know, who were doing ayahuasca. I could tell that because you know periodically I could hear them vomit. <laughs> <laughs> And what's your take on? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm. What's your take on on the the psychedelic experience within, like a twelve step thing? I don't understand what you mean. I mean, like in twelve step, like where does where do you think is there is it useful? Do you think psychedelics can be useful in recovery? Oh, it's a controversial really hotbed. I I don't really I don't really know. But I, I sense I, I my instinct is that it can't that it that it can be, mm-hmm. that it could be useful. Yeah, especially if there's violence involved, right? With someone, you know, in their recovery where someone's been violent or they have a history of that, I think that it could be useful. But I'm no expert, you know. Yeah, I I just read something about that that Bill Wilson when he. Uh, when he actually had his like white light experience, supposedly he was on some kind of psychedelic, some belladonna treatment, which was some mm. like, uh, I don't know, some psychedelic route. And that his white light experience happened in a psychedelic situation, which I thought was really, really interesting. Like I, um, I don't think I'm going to take psychedelics anytime soon, but I think it no. could be helpful in recovery. Yeah, yeah um, I, I have no, I have no watch to take psychedelics. I have to say, I feel pretty psychedelic without taking them, to be honest with you. I feel pretty connected. Yeah. I feel good. Yeah. One of the things that I, I, I found really helps, too, is is um, 
you know, is physical is physical exercise, physical stuff. You know, is is really uh, helpful. It has always has been very very helpful. Was very helpful for me, and still is helpful. It's just trying to um, uh, keep that going. That 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 getting getting your heart rate to a point where you're where you're moving, where you're feeling some endorphins kick in. It doesn't have to be extreme, but just where you're. I find that the more physical exercise I do, the more, the more euphoric moments I can have, and they're small, fleeting ones. But just creatively, it just keeps the more oxygenated your your blood is, the better I do. You know, I don't do enough of that stuff. What do you do for that? Uh, I go to the gym. I um, I take the dog uh, down to the beach, um, but I try and get my heart rate up. You know, to one fifty. You know, one fifty plus a few times a week for, you know, an extended period of time. And it really, it really kicks in some good, some good things for me. I have a couple more questions. Um, the controversy, the horrible story with down under and the, and the stupid court case in Australia. And I see that, uh, that right now the song is having this major crazy (laughs) resurgence, right? This weird techno down under that you're on lewd. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations! That's awesome. It, it it's amazing. I mean, it really is amazing. It's uh, it's um. I mean, that's that's psychedelic, right there. Very much so. Yes. <laughs> that's I, I laugh, laugh at that. I think that is a trip. That's a trip right there. Um, I mean, I would not have predicted that. And, How could um, you? And uh, you know, this uh, the this young lad uh, and his and his uh, record label. Um, they they sent us the track. And asked us to be involved with it, and um, and I liked it. You know, I like I like the sound. I liked the way it sounded. You know, and I wasn't sure. I played it to a couple of people, and I just thought, you know, it's so you either you know you either shut these things down or you just go okay, fine, you know. And then I so I gave him a, I gave him a, a re-recorded vocal. I gave him a new vocal, and they used that, and um, it's going nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you when you write that song and it's the you know number one song in the world, crazy video, and then what is it? Twenty five years later, some crazy 40. 40. 40, 40 years later, right? Mm-hmm. This this comp no not now. I mean when that company when the songwriting company oh. that bought Kookaburra just hears oh. on a game show that it <laughs> right. sounds familiar, and meanwhile Down Under is about Australia. Kookaburra is. It's like to me, it's an homage. It's it's a it's a it's a weird kind of like a thought, a memory that strengthens the yeah. song. It's certainly not thieving to me, but I mean I'm not a a lawyer or you know what I mean, a music publishing person. But the saddest part is hearing the story about your bandmate about Greg saying that he feels horrible that he's going to be remembered for plagiarizing this thing when obviously it was not plagiarism. And then he dies, right? Yeah. Um, and I read something today that it said it, he was allegedly a heroin addict. Is that true or is that not true? Yeah, Greg was. Um, Greg was. I met Greg when I was, I think, nineteen. I met him at my friend Kim's house, and um, he had these beautiful, bright eyes, and um, I loved him straight away. You know, he was just a beautiful guy, and um, he didn't particularly like being straight. Hmm. You know. He liked. He didn't. He wasn't a drinker. He loved. He loved weed. But then, 
um, he did get involved with heroin for quite a long time. And um, I don't know what was going on for the last, say, 10 years of his life. Um, I think he was off and on. But he did develop an alcohol problem after all that. Mm. So for the last 10 years of his life, he was drinking a lot. And I would talk to him a lot about that multiple times. And, um, you know, when I, after he died, I, you know, you have guilt about not doing enough because it's not like you could, it's not like you could see it coming. But when he did die, it was like, oh, you know, it was just, he told me this was going to happen, <laughs> you know, in, in, in many ways. What did he say? Um, Oh, you know, just sometimes he'd say things like I'd be having breakfast with him and he'd go, oh, yeah, well, this will, we could do this in a couple of years ago. That's if I'm still here, you know, like right. in jokes and stuff. But I didn't, I didn't take them as seriously as I should have, you know. But although I did, I would talk to him and he'd go, well, how do you stop? You know, and I'd say, well, he was a very smart guy that was, you know, very, he was smarter than I, than, than I am, you know, and he was very, cerebral about it he thought he thought like a lot of addicts they that he could control it you know even about six weeks before he died he he wrote me a, a text saying um an email saying you know i'm i'm still in the i'm still in the grip of the gripe but mm. i think i've got a but i think i've got a handle on it and we were talking about the court case and i would try and convince him about the fact that it wasn't going to it, it wasn't the case that that's that that's how he'd be remembered um, that that would be a footnote at best because in, 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 that was going to be forgotten about, uh, you know, in a few years. And indeed, that really is the case, you know. Absolutely. That, um, I remember him for tying the koala uh, to himself in the video, in the tree, because yeah. he was obviously such a good, you know, yeah. funny, sweet, you know, brilliant guy. Or the way he, the tone of his saxophone playing. Was he really down about it like did he did he was he did he take responsibility that he came up with the the line and like did he was he feeling responsible about it he thought a lot of guilt about it you know because he wasn't he wasn't sued mm. you know uh, i got sued and the others ron got sued although ron never turned up <laughs> he, he just he, he just hid and it worked for him you know because right. they you know, they never they never chased him, but I was more visible, so they went for me, and uh, so they sued me and they sued EMI Music Publishing, and of course at the time, we thought it was such a ridiculous case that 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 they would lose, um, but their argument, you know, in retrospect, their argument was brilliant in a way, you know, just looking at it uh, with the, with the benefit of hindsight because. All they said was we had all these different arguments about how the fact that it was a tip of the hat, it was it was it was unconscious appropriation because we never knew what it was because we were so stoned most of the time. Greg played it. He goes, ah, it sounds vaguely Australian. That what is it? And no, he just played, <laughs> and, it was just, and and then the uh, you know the producer when we were in the studio says that that flute line play that at the start of the song. Okay, play it again there. Play it. so it ended up being five bars in the song, and then you move on to something else. And we're sitting there listening to the song, and it's all subsumed uh, in the new song, and it's not—it not—it's not really Kookaburra anymore, you know. <laughs> and the song comes out, and uh, you know the, the the woman who wrote the song, um, she was alive and well at that particular time. She never she never said 
say anything about it. 28 years later, it's on the quiz show. But anyway, um, their argument was simply, look, you took 25% uh, of our song, so therefore there's copyright infringement. And their song is four bars long, so we didn't take any of the words, half the music, because there's two bars. So that's that was all. They just stuck to that. And the judge had to give them something because right. it's 25% of the song. That that was their whole thing. Right. And um and so they so they got five percent of the men at work version of the song. And uh and and I used to talk to my I used to talk to Greg about it and um no, he was traumatized by it. And and the and one of the biggest problems with him was that he was actually in Melbourne. He was in Australia when it was all happening. I was over here and you know you get the benefit of that distance. It's not right. You, it was a low-level stress for me. I had to go back there from time to time. And I mean, the whole case cost about four and a half million dollars, and which, which you know, that that was what the case cost. And you know, the songwriters, being me and Ron, uh, we had to bear about seventy percent of that cost. So it was a big cost, and they were awarded about a hundred grand. <laughs> you know that, and they won. I know. It's like what a, I mean. The lawyers won, and and, uh, uh, and poor and so Greg what, lost. You know his 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 heart. And that, that's the thing, uh, you know. Then uh, blood became involved. You know, and so that's really the money thing is just it's neither here nor there really. But but it, it really I I don't think that he was operating. He wasn't in a particularly good place when that happened. But it certainly. Um, you know, I, I, I would argue that it went, uh, went quite a long way to putting him in his grave, you know. And also, my father was was livid about the whole thing. You know, smoke would come out of his ears, you know, because he knew that it was a clean song, you know, because right. I went down and played them all the songs I wrote before the Men at Work even existed, you know, when I was playing them that song. And so he was, he couldn't understand it. And, you know, and, he, and he'd gone to that country and he believed in that country and all of a sudden that was seemed to be taken away from him and it did a big number on him. Well, it might have been the greatest tourism that Australia ever had is your song and, and, it, and, and it bites you in the ass that you wrote this song, you know what I mean, for Australia. So I'm sure your dad was just like, ah, you know what I mean? This, my son did so much for this country kind of thing, right? Yeah, he just he just saw the injustice of it, you know, and he saw it for what it was. But um, it was, um, oh look, it was just it was just uh, they tried it on, you know, and they they saw dollar signs and they tried it on, and and you know they wanted sixty percent of down under. So if somebody wants sixty percent of your song, you need to defend it. You need to sure. you need you need to do what you need you have to do to. Um, but in retrospect, you know, I would not recommend litigation. I would not recommend going to court for anybody. You know, I would, I would, I would advise um, settlement of some kind, just because of the fact. Even if you end up, you know, compromising or giving away something, you're better off not so much because of the money that you lose, but because of how many people it can potentially hurt, you know? Right. And that's, I mean, that's retrospect. And then after it was all over and Greg died, uh, was it hard to play the song for you? Like when you're on, when you're touring and you're doing your solo stuff, was, was it heavy in your heart to play the tune? Yeah, it was for a long time. It was, it was, it was after he died. It was, um, I was on tour actually. 
And um, look, it was just, it really made me angry and upset because he was, he was one of those guys that I wanted to get old with. Right. You know? And there was no need for him to die. You know, that was the, you know, it was just, it was stupid, ridiculous that he died. You know, he was like, he was not that kind of guy. You know, he was, he was, uh, you know, but, but there was a lot going on addiction wise that he was, he was suffering from, you know, and I, I, I wasn't living in the same country as him. He know? didn't have the surrender that you had, certainly, right? He wasn't surrendered to it. He wasn't. And um, he, he would, you know, he wasn't. He was. No, he didn't. He didn't want to. He didn't want to give it. He didn't. You know, that was the thing that whenever since I've met Greg, as I was saying to you at this, when we started to talk about him, you know, you know, as 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 lovely a guy as he was, he didn't really, he didn't really particularly like being straight, you know, for for, for extended periods of time. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Like at the end of the run, it's like. Are you tired of doing this thing? Or like I didn't want to be straight. Like I didn't know that I liked being straight until I had a little bit of time straight. You know what I yeah. mean? Like I had forgotten what it was to be straight and sober and yeah. have fun. I didn't think it was possible until I started to do it. And and you know, I mean, what was didn't you have an experience like that? Like, isn't that kind of a shared thing? Like nobody thinks it's gonna be good to be straight. Not really. Yeah, I, I would and it was a great thing about the I mean, the meetings was whenever I would think about not drinking for the rest of my life, I would be immediately incredibly depressed because uh, I'd think, oh, my God, what can my life possibly be if I can't have a drink, you know? And then if I would just think, well, I, won't, I just won't have a drink today. And that was more manageable. You know, I could manage that and I could manage, I could manage the, the fact that I wasn't feeling depressed about that so much. I was just going, okay, you know, I, I feel okay. You know, I don't have the highs and lows, but every day is, you know, pretty good. You know, I'd wake up and I'd, I wouldn't have a hangover, and, and you, that's a good start right there, you know, because the hangovers were the things that just, in the end, just freaked me out, mainly because I would wake up and I would, I would, would not remember what had happened for the last couple of days. And then sometimes it was scary, when I found out <laughs> the stuff you had done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Um, I really appreciate you giving us so much time. I really do. And um, did you feel comfortable when you went to meetings at first? Like, were you like, this makes sense? Or were you like, I can't believe I have to go to these things. How long did you get sorted out with it? Oh, I, I didn't mind the meetings. I liked the meetings because there was solidarity. There was a lot of other people there who were drunks like me and, and so forth. But I did have a trouble. I did have a bit of trouble with God, not being a religious person. I didn't so much have a problem with a higher power idea or the fact that um, there's a lot going on in this universe that's bigger than me that I don't understand. But the actual idea of God was troubling for me a bit, meetings, I must say. Uh, the meetings themselves I liked, but then whenever it would get to that bit, I would be, I would think, you know, I don't know, I drifted, after a few years, I drifted away from meetings and I just, um, I felt safe in my own skin. I knew I wasn't going to drink again. I know I'm not going to drink again. And I I would go out and, on the road and a lot in a lot of ways, uh, you know, creativity kind of became my salvation in a way. And I, 
I don't know. I just it's naturally. I mean, I would. I've been thinking about going back to a few meetings recently, just because I I feel the slight desire to go back and connect with that. But um, I haven't so far. But there's a a bunch. They're mainly on Zoom still, you know. But I I went this morning. Oh, you did. Good man. On the beach, on the beach in in eastern Long Island. But when you're touring with like Ringo's band, isn't that whole band sober? Or most no, of it? No, Ringo goes to meetings. He goes, he goes yeah. with uh, with uh, his lawyer, and and they, they go together. And um, I've I've nearly gone I've nearly gone a few times with them, but I've never I haven't made for some reason it's never worked out that I didn't get the call. The tour manager didn't call me, or they called and then they didn't end up going. There was one a couple of times I was going to go, and then they ended up not going. Um, but uh, yeah, Ringo's like that, and there's also uh, let me think about this for a second. Joe Walsh, right? Uh, Joe, but Joe's not in the band. Joe was in, Joe was in the band originally, but. Um, no, Steve Lukather is in the band. He has a, he has a drink. Oh, no, he doesn't drink either. He stopped drinking as well. Um, he stopped a few years ago. Um, Edgar Winters is doing this one. I don't know if Edgar has a drink. I think I remember Edgar having a, having a glass of wine. I'm not sure. The Hamish brother Stewart, got sober. Johnny did, yeah. yeah. Um, I think. And then Hamish Stewart's in this band. Hamish has a drink. He has a glass of wine. Um, I don't think that I don't think the Bissonette drinks. I'm not sure. I don't think he drinks much. Amazing um, band, huh? How was that experience? It's a relatively, oh, it's great fun. There's nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> nothing wrong with that at all in the slightest. Is that cool, though, to be in Ringo's band? Isn't that fucking the coolest thing? It's the best. It's the best. <laughs> you turn around, you're playing a song, and Ringo's playing the drums. Man, it's that's incredible. it. Top, top, top of the food chain right there. Did he approach you? Who came to you? Uh, they, they came to his, his people came to me. And uh, you know, they, 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 you have to you have to have had hits, but you know you have uh, you uh, the the prerequisite is that you have to have had hits by yourself. You have to be able to still play them, still sing them, and right. hopefully play other people's and sing them as well, and be a sideman for everybody else. So um, yeah, I mean you know it's Ringo, man. There's only one Ringo. It's it's it's. Um, I mean, just watching that Get Back documentary the other day. I mean. I can watch it again. I can watch it over and over again. I used to sit and watch that Let It Be movie over and over and over and over, and I would want to live there. So you watch Get Back, which is what, seven hours? Is it eight hours? Um, Did you tell Ringo? Are you calling up Ringo and being like, oh, you know, like, I can't believe they tape recorded the phone call about you? Or did you, like, what was your experience watching that movie? I just watched it with my wife, and uh, no, I never talked to Ringo about it. I saw Ringo yesterday, actually, but I never even mentioned it. <laughs> incredible, incredible. <laughs> he, Colin, didn't <laughs> he didn't mention it. He didn't mention it. I wonder. It. So cool. What was I going to say? So I'm going to see you in Patchog in a month. Right. Can I bring you anything? You want a pastrami sandwich from Katz's? You eat meat or you don't eat meat? No, I think that would be, I mean, I do. And I do. It's, it's a nice idea, uh, but no, I wouldn't eat that. Um, <laughs> Okay, no, but it's a nice thought. Uh, so where about where about exactly in Long Island are you? Where is that? I live in a town called Sayville. It's like fifty miles east of Manhattan, but I grew okay. up in Manhattan. And and you're going to okay. play in Patchog, which is another mile east of Sayville. Nice. I love playing that part of the world. It's been very good to me for the last thirty years. All those gigs. I mean, I've played so many gigs for so long, and um, that's the addiction. But I don't want to give that up. 
but it's a, is is it a is it ever a harmful addiction? No. It's the best, right? Traveling yeah, the world, connecting. Yeah. Well, human contact. Well, we're going to see you. I'm very excited and I am so happy uh, you came on the show. I really appreciate your time. No worries. It was a pleasure. Lovely talking to you. Stay oh, well. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye. Later. All right. That was the great Colin Hay. He refused the free Katz's pastrami sandwich. Maybe he's a vegetarian. Maybe he's a vegan. Who knows? Either way, it was, uh, it was a thrill for me to talk to this guy. Lifelong fan. Here's the, the things that I wished I had talked to Colin Hay about. Every interview ends with me thinking about the things I had wished I had talked to somebody about. Colin Hay, I wished I talked about the influence of reggae music on his, uh, his music. Because, you know, his music is totally informed by reggae. I wish I had talked about that stupid show Scrubs and how it resuscitated his career. And maybe in the future we will get Colin Hay on again with the great Ringo Starr. Or maybe just Colin Hay. Maybe in person. Who knows? And also we did that interview over video. Howie was there. He produced the whole thing. So you will be able to see a full color version of Colin Hay on Dopey YouTube, but it'll be on Dopey Patreon first, which should come out like today or something. So join Dopey Patreon. See Colin Hay. See me in color. And one person that we haven't seen or heard from in a while is my dad. And I think it is time to give him a call on the show. So stand by. Here we go. Hello. Welcome back to the show, Dad. Oh, it's been a long time. Let me tell you. Hi. Hi, everybody. So you feel? I, I hear the scorn in your voice. So let's start with that. Let's start with that, Dad. How much on a scale of one to ten have you missed coming on the old Dopey program? Ten. You really missed it a lot, huh? <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, no. I'm not. Not really. But I figured ten is a good answer. Yeah. All right, so okay. let's let's get into the most. I mean, my father. If you really want to get into the rigmarole of my father's life, he has a yeah. knee, he has a knee injury. He needs surgery, but I want to skip all that stuff. I want. Oh, to you want to skip all that? Okay. Okay, now Dad, no, tell I mean, the dopey nation about your knee first. Oh, I'm I'm in terrible pain. I mean, it's awful, but I'm getting surgery and it's arthroscopic, and I'm hoping for the best that I should be fine. Okay, that's enough of that. That's good. That's it. Uh, that I hope it's going to all work out. What happened? Right, what Why, how did you did, tell the dopey nation how you how you messed up your knee? Well, I was. I think it's called old age. Uh, it, I was walking and playing golf, and I tried not to overdo it. And I and obviously something happened: the meniscus tore and a cartilage tore. And, uh, and the pain was terrible, so I finally had an MRI that showed all that stuff. But I've had two, I have had two of these surgeries in the past, and hopefully this is going to be as good as they were, I hope. Anyway, how are you guys doing? What's happening with the Dopey Nation? What are you asking me for? I'm talking to you about, about the show. <laughs> so we're going to call that, we're going to call it wear and tear on the name. All right. Now, yeah. now, now I want to move on from your old age or oldage, as you like to say, and I want to get yeah. to the Allen 
critique of the show. It's been, you haven't come on the show in probably what, 10 weeks, seven weeks, something like that. Uh, a long time. Yeah. So what is yeah. your general, what's your critique on the state of the Dobie podcast? Well, on the whole, I think everything is going very, very well. I was a little upset with that last episode, but with the young man's name was Ben or something. Oh, that Jay. was his name. I don't even. You, I don't oh. know what show you're listening to. His name was Jay. <laughs> no, maybe it's some Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Hey, Jay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Jay. I I was. I hope for the best for him, and and I agree with everybody in the Dopey Nation who says, uh, you know, hoping that everything works out for him. But for him to be upset at police for trying to stop him from what he's doing, that, that, that really galled me, you know, to blame police for, for doing their job that maybe could have saved people's lives if they stopped him from selling fentanyl. Uh, I, I was upset with that um, in terms of, of his attitude towards the police. Uh, and I, I hope he changes. I, I hope he, I hope he uh, you know, sees the light and, uh, and understands uh, what terrible damage he could have done to other people or has done to other people. Let me knows? ask you this, Dad. And, when, when Jay yeah. rails against the police, does that remind yeah. you of me railing against you? Uh, no, no. When did, when did you... Well, when he, did you he's, 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 he's deciding that the police uh, have, have been a problem, right? For his, like, you know, he blames the police like I blame you for my addiction. He blames the police for his incarceration. In other words, another words, we're talking about two things that are totally ridiculous. No, Each I, one, think, I, agree. I think. Listen, I think addicts <laughs> blame the police, and I don't. I don't blame him for blaming the police. And you are definitely, at least partially, responsible for my horrible heroin addiction. I just need to put that out there. Maybe I. Maybe it's covering too much ground. Now there's new ground. There's been a. No, I mean, good. there's been a lot of controversy around the J episode. Some people say. They don't want to hear drug dealers on Dopey. It's not yeah. it's not positive enough. But how many people have complained that Dopey wasn't Dopey enough? How many people complain it's celebrity recovery bullshit, and then I get someone who's not a celebrity in recovery, and then right. they shit on me for that? What's up with Listen, that? I, okay, quite that. I gave you advice that I got from somebody else. You can't please all the people all the time at all. You can't do that. You have to do what you think is right. And you're the, you're the decider. So you, you put on people on the show and you, you know, obviously you don't know the outcome, but you knew this was going to be controversial. I guess maybe after you spoke with them. No, I knew it um, would be controversial before I spoke to him, but, but I by thought, the way, what? Yeah. What? No, I mean, the, the analogy you made about the police caused him to be in, in incarceration. In other words, in other words, you're saying all his behavior wasn't the cause of him being uh, incarcerated. His behavior had nothing to do with it. And of course, it was his behavior. I mean, I, that's didn't, exactly I, what I, it was. I didn't say that. Yeah. I, I was making okay. a joke. You're, you're never. You, it's <laughs> like, that was a joke. Yes. I, of course, it was his responsibility. That, uh, oh, wait a minute. You're also making a joke that, that I'm the cause of your addiction then, right? I think it's a partial joke. I think every good yeah. joke every good joke has a nice kernel of truth in it. Now, Yeah, well, you, got, you do have half of my genes, so that could be the problem. Yeah. No, no, it was the bad parenting, not the bad genetics. But I don't want to oh, go down. Give I don't, me a break. I don't, don't go listen, down. I don't want to go down that road. 
Now, there was a lot of complaining in the Dopey Nation about the sound quality. And usually you're the first person. Usually you hear something you don't like on the show and you text me and you call me and you harangue me that the sound quality is bad. So why didn't you do that? Because when I heard it, it was perfectly good. It seems that you, you said you fixed it at some point. I think I heard the fixed version. Nah, I, I mean, what well, happened was me and Jay were in my car and yeah. and I used a handheld recording device where we each had a microphone and Jay wasn't used to using a microphone and he would kind of turn his head. So you would yeah. miss the end of a couple of his sentences. But just the fact that you didn't, and I did, I did do a little bit of work on it, but not that much. Yeah. But just the fact that you didn't complain about the sound and you're the biggest complainer about the sound that I've ever dealt with. I mean, I don't know why so many people had such a big problem with it. Lots of people had problems with the sound. Well, I don't know. Obviously, I guess he wasn't speaking close enough to the microphone. Maybe I maybe I didn't mind not hearing what he was saying. I think that's um, probably what it was. And I think that Jay is going to... I'm very close with Jay, and I think Jay will definitely return on the show. Um, but is, what, what's going on with the prison business? I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll get an update from him soon. He doesn't think um, he's going to go. He thinks that because oh. of COVID and that he was a nonviolent offender... Uh, that he doesn't think he's going to go. He's also like really been participating in his recovery. He's done everything that anyone asked him to do. You know, he did, uh, he did everything that they've asked him to do. And I think they're, they're trying not to put more people in prison right now, but we'll see. All right. All right. What else? So you want, all right. I think Aaron is, is terrific. Uh, I think Howie is, you know, is good with, uh, with, uh, with the ice cream stuff. Uh, what did I say? I, I don't know how good he is with the daily reflections because it really doesn't, you know, he's not really into that. You don't need to put Howie down, Dad. What else? What else you got to talk about? Um, that's about it. I mean, in terms of, in terms of how you're doing, but I, I keep pushing you, you know, to, to do the, the stuff that was supposed to be done. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the planning for the future, and I think we, we're doing that. Ah, I think it's, this is important. Now take a deep breath. Oh no! Can All you right. take a deep breath? Yeah, I just did. Okay, tell the dopey nation about what's coming this spring. You think it's going to happen this spring? You don't. Okay, then let's. How about this summer? How about this fall? When do you think? I'm telling I, people this I, spring we're putting this thing together. Well, it's being put together right now. What's what's happening to Dopey Nation is is that is that David is starting the Dopey Foundation, and I have I have gotten it organized and sent it out to the lawyer and the accountant, and they're going to start filing papers to make the Dopey Foundation a uh, nonprofit dedicated, uh, you know, to trying to help uh, people with uh, addiction problems, and that's that's what's happening right now. Yes, but it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. The New York State thing has to happen first, and then it, then it has to go through the to get a, a, a federal uh, tax uh, a statement on it as being a nonprofit. So it's not a it's not a one two three thing. It, it may it may take into next winter or even who knows when it's official, but it's starting. So and do you foresee do you foresee the Dopey Foundation helping a lot of people? 
Well, you're helping. Just think about it. The reason why you're starting it is because of how many people, you know, the dopey has helped already. And now you can expand it and help even more people. Yeah, that's the whole point. I mean, I, I wouldn't be involved if I didn't think we would be able to help more people. Yes, that would be important. All right, what else you got? What do you mean? I mean, listen, you're a pain in the neck, as usual, accusing me of all sorts of things. Uh, I, uh, but but I love you very much, and I, you're working very hard on this thing, so, you know, that's, that's, that's important. So, anyway, did you, did you understand, why do people not like the Ben and Jerry stuff? Or, or, or what do you think is happening with the YouTube? Why don't people watch Dopey YouTube? That's a good question. Yeah. I think yeah. they don't. There, it's not on their radar. So we're gonna yeah. say that dopey, dopey people should fucking subscribe to Dopey YouTube. Some are better than right. others. You know, we're working on a new thing on Dopey YouTube, and it's called Behind the Dope. And behind right. the dope is is dopey characters telling dopey stories. And we're actually going to end this episode with a new a new installment of Behind the Dope with a friend of the show, Jessica Kent, tells a pretty, pretty crazy story. But before we do, uh, I've seen a bunch of pictures of you in different dopey merchandise. Have you been enjoying wearing your dopey merchandise, Dad? Oh, are you kidding? It was freezing in Florida, and I was wearing the the, the, the beanie, the beanie, and the and the sweatshirt. I I was very happy to wear it. Yes. And if you I, guys I was, hold on, I got to do a little little commercial here. If you guys want to get any dopey merchandise, SRO Prints handles all of our printing out of Cincinnati, Ohio. If you want to hire a printer, go to SROPrints.com. And if you want dopey merchandise, go to dopeypodcast.com. There's major new stuff coming out, major new dopey gear. If you want the beanies or the old snapbacks, Dad, you saw they're making the Oyve hoodie right now? Yeah, people are buying, people are buying Oyve, I think. That's amazing. The Oyve hoodie, the Oyve t-shirt, the Oyve long sleeve, all available. It would be, it would be amazing if you made an Othello something. Well, I have an Othello design in the works. It's funny that you that you mentioned that. Oh, really? Uh, by, yeah, and no. By the way, the Patreon uh, membership is doing very well too. I think. I think uh, people are uh, seeing that they're getting their money's worth or something. Well, I'll tell uh, you, I'm lost with Dopey Patreon because yes, what? I have to say I appreciate everybody for being a part of Dopey Patreon, but there's not a lot of interaction over there. People don't seem to care. Whatever we're doing. What, what are you talking about? They're a member. That's, that's big caring. I want to I mean, figure that's... out, like, what dopey patrons want to see on dopey Patreon. Like, you know well, what I'm going to do? Just... You know what I'm going to do but... is I'm going to put up, I have a bunch of old episodes of Shuffle that I still haven't put up. My classic, oh, yeah. my classic interview of Grateful Dead guitar player and singer-songwriter Bob Weir where I'm pretty high on heroin, I think I'm going to put up there. And, uh, Dad, what, what would you want to see on Patreon? On, on, the, on the Patreon? I, I think it would be, you know, as you just said, to feature the, the, the members, the dopey members out there, to feature them, give them a chance to tell their stories. Um, you know, I think they would appreciate that. I think that would be a good idea. I think I should just but, every but I think week. You're doing it though. I, I think you're doing that. Thing. I think every week I should just talk about how you and mom created this monster 
this, you know, with your neglect. All right. I think the time limit is up now. I think, I think, uh, I think between, I think, between, I, I think between your enabling and your neglect, it was the perfect, perfect. I think, perfect, uh, I think this has really been nice speaking with you. We call really, it. The, have a good day. Have you ever heard of the Goldilocks? Uh, state, which is, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just that that's like the creation of earth, right? No, we, well, we're talking about trying to find another planet like earth, which would be a Goldilocks planet. Now, before, not too hot, not too cold. That's, that's exactly how my, my addiction was born. Not too much neglect, not too much enabling, just enough for me to become a hopeless heroin addict. But before we yeah. go, before we go quickly, dad, Educate us on the Ukraine. Is this the verge of World War Three? Uh, only, only if Putin decides to go further. Ukraine is not a NATO country, so right now the poor country is on its own. But if Putin decided to go into any of the other NATO countries, like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, then there would be a war. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, the, and the Ukrainians maybe would make it very hard for Russia to occupy that country. And uh, we'll see. It's a horrible situation. Very, very horrible. And that's just to tell you how horrible one person can be, an autocrat, how one dictator, one man can cause so much trouble for, 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 for nothing. For absolutely no, no, no reason whatsoever. You don't need to have Russian imperialism anymore. You don't need that. In any case, that was my take on that. So it's not good right now. But this, there's not going to be a world war unless Putin goes further than he's going. Okay. That's my opinion. Okay. What, but if he does. Okay, enough, enough, he, enough. I got it. I got it. Now, what's your good. opinion on the Knicks? I, they're, they're terrible. Are they gonna, they're not going to make the playoffs, right? They're 13 I mean, games. Uh, they're, they're 13 games. Uh, <laughs> Below 500, Kemba Walker is done for the year. He's finished. And uh, well, how many how many games are they out of 10th place? The playoffs. I think stuff? just like five. Well, I don't think they're making up five games. Anyway, yeah, it's just awful. Just an awful situation. But my fantasy basketball team is more injured than I am. All right, just wait. Hold on. I don't. We don't want to hear about your your sick obsession with fantasy basketball at the moment. What do you think is more likely? The Knicks make the playoffs, or or this Ukrainian involvement? Uh, we we invade and we uh, we attack Russia. What's more likely? Uh, they're both they're both very very unlikely. They're so, both very, very unlikely. But if I would say the Knicks making the playoffs is more unlikely. <laughs> so you think World War Three is more likely than the Knicks making the playoffs? I don't want to say that. That's not a good thing to say. That's, no. Okay. No. Well, no, I'm not saying. As usual, you've been an incredible asset to our show. Thank you. Is there anything you want to leave the, the dopey nation with before you go? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I want everybody to stay healthy and be well and, uh, and toodle and support the show and toodles for Chris. Wait, 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 one more question in the same no. Goldilocks kind of, uh, what do we call it? Goldilocks scenario. What is it? Yeah. Now, uh, Goldilocks. Yeah. Now is dopey a Goldilocks of addiction, meaning, you know, not too out there, not too conservative. Have we hit the the perfect sort of just right area? No, I think you hit. 
I think in many of the episodes you hit both extremes and and many episodes you hit in the middle. I think it runs the gamut. That's why you have the controversy in, in terms of because sometimes it gets pretty raw for people like me to listen to it. You're right. I didn't mind, you know, what I didn't hear what the kids said. Uh, but uh, and sometimes uh, you you know it's in the middle and uh, and very soothing and uh, and and you know and and uh, heartfelt and sometimes it's you know very raw and and hard to hard to listen to. This you week know, I start the show by mm-hmm. talking about lying at the Bronx Zoo in order to get Nora unvaccinated into indoor exhibitions. Do you think that yeah, was that's, really that's- the wrong thing to do? Absolutely. Why? Totally. Why? Because listen, my uh, my opinion is is that the vaccine is absolutely in, important and incredible. Maybe now I hope this thing is disappearing, and that if in fact you are not vaccinated and you're told you can't go in somewhere, you should not. Now, did she wear a mask at least? No. Maybe. Uh, I no, I think she. I think she did. I think she did. No, if if you're not supposed to go into a place unless you're vaccinated, you should damn well be vaccinated. Absolutely, and, I'm, and I was not happy with that. But what the heck? That's the way it goes. What are you happy uh, with? I'm I'm happy that uh, the show is going well and that Nora is ha- healthy and Susie is healthy and, and and my other grandchildren Nina and Alex are healthy and and you are and you are doing okay, even though you're a pain in the neck. That's what I think. All right, this is another world-class appearance. Maybe we'll wait another 10 weeks before we have it back. Thank you. Yeah, all right. All right, goodbye. All right, all right, bye-bye. So without further ado, that was my my father. And, uh, you know, send in your your emails and your voicemails. Uh, But this week on the show, we, we need your emails and your voicemails. Where would we be without the Dopey Nation's emails and voicemails? So please send them in. And uh, this is going to be behind the dope. And, and you can see Jess, Jessica Kent, in all of her glory on Dopey Patreon and eventually Dopey YouTube. Please check all that shit out. And uh, I'm just going to leave you with this. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. Here's Jessica Kent before we go. She is a phenomenon of YouTube, a TikTok magnate, an Instagram legend. She has movies coming out. She used to deal crystal meth, heroin, (laughs) running with magazine crews. She's someplace at a secret location in Chicago. The one and only Jessica Kent. Welcome back to the show. I'm so done with you. What? I think that you should do intros for, like, every single fucking YouTuber. Like, they're so good every time. Well, last time we had you on, you were starting the Invisalign treatment. And I know you're very, very vocal with all the all the moves. So give us an update. Oh, How's your teeth? Like, hell on earth. So if you want a snack, you have to rip plastic and shit out of your mouth. Then you can eat. Then you have to brush your teeth. It's like a whole thing that I don't want to do anymore. <laughs> well, so how is it going, though? What does the dentist say? Orthodontist, orthodontist. Yeah, orthodontist. He says it's cool. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm just fucking hungry all the time, but I'm also lazy. So I used to, like, snack all day long because I work from home, you know, and I just want to snack. You just Maybe. want to snack. So do you, do you keep them out for a long time and eat your sugary cereals and such? 
So I'm timed. I'm on like a timed schedule because I'm a neurotic. So I'll get, I'll get up, eat breakfast quickly, and then drink some coffee. And in the morning, it's like longer than usual that I take them out because I like to sip coffee. Then put them right back in, have lunch. That's 15 minutes, brush, put them back in, dinner. <laughs> like, so it's stupid. It's the but you're pretty good. You're pretty good about it. It seems like you're, you're on a good schedule. You don't want to fuck this up. You don't. Like, if it didn't cost this much money, I would have quit weeks ago. Weeks right. ago. You're invested. Mm-hmm. 100%. Big. All right. And uh, I'm just curious, what do you put in your coffee? I like just Dunkin' Donuts K-Pods and then French vanilla coffee with, like, one sugar. All right. With the French vanilla creamer. Huge cup, like as big as my head. All right. Cup as big as your head, a little French vanilla and one sugar. Okay, I'm satisfied. Now, <laughs> we we I, I love everything that you do. Your stories are crazy. Somebody's just commenting on Dopey Reddit. You got to get more drug dealers like Jessica Kent on the show. And, uh, and well, rather than getting other drug dealers like Jessica Kent on the show, or should I say former drug dealers... We'll get you on, and we're doing a new little feature inspired by you, which is either going to be called Dopey Top 5 or Behind the Dope, where we get the most fucked up stories. What do you prefer? I'm taking it to Allie. Dopey Top 5 or Behind the Dope? I like Behind the Dope. I think that's really cool. That's two to nothing. (laughs) All right. Here we go. So... You've told a lot of fucked up stories in your day on Dopey and, of course, a million more on the Jessica Kent YouTube channel. So please go subscribe and like to that shit because that's where it's at. Um, So why don't you share some horrible shenanigans you got into in your former life? Oh, man. So you're in New York. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I really want to tell like a Greyhound bus story. So... A lot of people ask me, like, how did you find connections? Like, how did you find people that would sell you drugs? Like, you looked like you were 10. Like, you looked like you ditched class as a 10-year-old and, like, maybe you're a runaway. Like, I don't know, bro. People didn't give a shit. Like, if you had money, no one cared. So I uh, was on the run from either, like, a man or, like, some charges or something. I I think I was like 18 or 19 years old and I'm like, man, I just lost everything. I lost my connect. I lost my place. Like I lost everything and I have to go on the run. Maybe it was the first time I joined magazine crew. I'm not sure. No, that couldn't have been it because I was by myself. Who fucking knows? Don't do drugs. Uh, But I was by myself on this Greyhound bus and I know that like it's coming. Like I'm about to be sick and this was not the first. Hold up. Hold up one sec. So you're saying you had a habit. You get on the bus and you don't have any heroin. So when she says, and I'm just telling Howie this because he doesn't understand what you're talking about. Um, when you're a heroin addict and you run out of heroin, you're going to go into withdrawal. So that's that's where we are. I'm just helping out here. Just a little bit. Yeah. I'm about to go through withdrawals. And I have had so much time on Greyhound buses, like all across the country, from New York to Colorado, Colorado to Connecticut, Kansas, like West Virginia. Like I've been on this fucking Greyhound tour of America, basically, um, over the years. So for whatever reason, I'm on this bus and I don't even know where I'm going. I don't remember that, but I'm in the back of this bus and I'm like, I'm about to go through withdrawals on a fucking Greyhound bus. But there's like a porter potty in the bus, so we're good. It's it's okay. <laughs> and um, I look over. 
the seat like right next to me, there's this guy, he's just sitting there and he kind of keeps looking over at me, which makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, why the fuck is he staring at me? You know, so I'm just like, like over and over again, like what? And it just started to make me like weird and insecure and like violent, like stop staring at me, dude. Like I'm sweating probably, I'm uncomfortable. Like I just want to put my hoodie on and I don't want anyone to fuck with me. Well, <laughs> he looks over one final time and he goes, what are you into? I'm like, what does that mean? What am I into? Stop. Wait, how old were you? Maybe 19. Okay. And how old did he seem? A few years older than me, but not that old. Okay. I'm like, what are you into? What are you into? And I'm thinking like, what, what does that mean? Is that like sexual? Like, what do you, what do you mean? So I'm like, what, what do you on? What do you take? I'm like, dude, like, you don't even want to know all the shit that I do. Like, I'm just, I'm fucked up. Okay, so, like, go to sleep and enjoy your ride. It's, like, dark. And he's, like, he's, like, trying to help me without saying, like, I have drugs, you fucking bitch, and I can help you. <laughs> you know, so I'm just, like, sketched out, and he's kind of sketched out, not trying to say, like, I have drugs, and you are fucking sick. Like, I can see it. Um... He so, sensed it. He knew you were sick. He totally could tell. You could tell, you know, especially if you're holding and you're using. Yeah, because you're uncomfortable and you're, you're like this and you're just like, oh, you can't get comfortable to save your life. And you're like going from like hoodie to no hoodie to like you, you can tell. <laughs> All I want to do is get in a comfortable position and like die, you mm -hmm. know? Yes. So he eventually like slides over into my seat. <sighs> what the fuck? Look, I got some dog food or whatever he said. Just if you have money, that's cool. If you don't, let me just help you out. And I had never in my life had somebody be kind to me in that way. You know, like people didn't cut me deals like that. I had to come correct. I had to pay for every single thing that I had. And it was a big deal. And uh, we were in the, the back, like the back, back seat of this bus. And I had a rig because I always had it, even if I didn't have anything. I got cottons, like I'm gonna figure out a way to like not be as sick as possible, right? And with this complete stranger on my side, I shot up whatever he said this was, you know, you can't, you couldn't test it back then. Um, and I shot up on this Greyhound bus going to who even fucking knows where, this complete stranger. And um, like I even remember his name, I don't wanna say it, but uh, it was very, like uncomfortable. Wait, you know? wait, you remember his whole name or just his first name? I remember his first name and I'll tell you why in a second. Um, but it was just so uncomfortable. Like the, the bathroom is right by where I am. Cause I'm in the back of the bus. So I'm thinking like, I have to hurry up and get this done. We used the cap, a water bottle and like a book maybe or something else. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but the bus is going down a highway. Like it is not an easy thing to shoot up on a Greyhound bus going down a freaking highway. Um, especially with a stranger right here, like right here, like watching this whole process. And I'm uncomfortable that this is happening, but like, I'm so sick. I don't care really. I'm just aware of like, this is fucking weird. This is weird. And the bus is like, <laughs> like this, you know? Um, so I, I get done doing that and I feel better. Definitely was not high, but it took the edge off. And we close up all that stuff, probably dropped some shit, made some noise. Someone probably knew what was going on. 
And I got his phone number. And the next time that I was going through Port Authority, I called him and he actually connected me to a couple different people in Shirley, New Jersey, where I scored a couple of times, like packages. So I think I would have been so fucking excited if that had happened. Like I would have been so excited, like whenever I thought it was over and then it wasn't over, I was like, oh, my God. This is the greatest thing ever. Do you remember where the bus took you? Like, did you wind up getting sick ultimately, or did you have another hookup? I have no memory of it. I must have been going back to Magazine Crew, so it's maybe South Carolina, something like that. But when I would return to Magazine Crew, my boss would make me detox because weed was cool, alcohol sometimes okay, heroin not okay. Um, and I had a lot of chances with my boss. I had a lot of leeway. You know, I was I was a queen bitch on this magazine crew. And he he tried. He tried several times to try to get me sober and have me have a crew under me so that I was successful and, like, off of drugs and out of New York. I just wasn't with the fucking program. Now, <laughs> hold on. Now, listen, you've explained this to me before, but I'm so stupid. I still don't understand what a magazine crew or what the queen bitch of a magazine crew is. So just if I'm not, if I'm the only person, forgive me, Dopey Nation, whoever in YouTube is watching, just break it down one more time. Cause I, I have my own inability to learn sometimes. You're not stupid. It's just so confusing. Um, so the magazine crew was a group of kids, 50 kids, 18 to 25, and they all go door to door and travel the country selling subscriptions to magazines. So like ESPN, Maxim, Hustler, whatever. Uh, and yeah, so you get promoted in, in this crew and, uh, do people actually get the magazines? Yeah. Yep. So there's no scam. It's like a weird job. What's the scam? So there are crews that are complete scams and you won't get your magazines. Like that has happened before. I have, you know, on a couple occasions been with people that would steal orders, you know, so like some people probably didn't get magazines. I think it's amazing the way we have a story, right? And your story happens to have this magazine crew thing. So, like, for the rest of your life, you're going to be explaining what a magazine crew is. And there's never going to be a magazine crew again because of computers and subscriptions and digital magazines. And it's like, isn't that funny how, like, one detail that existed crystallizes forever in your story. And it's so specific. I think it's cool. It was a really cool experience. You know, I might not have liked working as hard as they wanted me to work. And I wasn't about the program. And like, I didn't want to have a crew of my own. It just wasn't for me. A lot of people have like traumatic experiences on these crews. And a lot of people link up with bad people and they have horrifying stories about it. That wasn't the case for me. You know, I was with a group of really good people that I'm still friends with today. And we have this crazy ass story. I traveled the country, made money. People gave a fuck enough about me to try to get me sober. You know, so I'm grateful that I actually got on a Greyhound bus one day and went to this crazy ass weird magazine crew. Yeah, it's a cool adventure. But the irony is you were like, I don't want to start a magazine crew. I don't want to do that. Instead, I want to start a meth crew. <laughs> And deal meth in Arkansas instead. I don't want to. I don't want to have a nice legal situation. I just want to have my my meth minions in Arkansas. But well, 
really in Arkansas, I just wanted to eat and do free drugs. That's, I wasn't like a kingpin selling meth. I was just trying to get by. Wow. Your stories are always amazing to hear. I love the sick junkie on the bus, the damsel in distress. Now, let me ask you this. Did he make any moves on you? I'm so glad you said that because I would have hung up and I would have been mad that I didn't say it because people are all, like automatically assume that it was that kind of thing. He never hit on me or was weird or like never made me feel uncomfortable in that way. Uh, and we linked up several times. I bought drugs from him several times. I, I even have a picture of us together because I made him bring my uh, childhood friend, I call her my sister, I made him be a tour guide for us one day. And he's like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, dude, I'll pay you 500 bucks so that she thinks I'm coming down here to like, you know, hang out in the city and be cool and not a fucking drug dealer, dude. So you want me all day to spend time with this bitch and I'm not supposed to use drugs or talk about drugs? I'm like, no, just be normal. Just be normal. See, I think that's a great concept for like a romantic comedy movie, like where you're like, I need you to take me and my friend around the city today and pretend that we're having fun. And then you fall in love like that would be the movie. Yeah, you know? he, he never hit on me. I was obviously not his type, but he was always really annoyed with me, you know, like nice. I just had so he like, he's like, all right, fine. It's cool. Just come on. Make sure you catch the train because there's no fucking train out to Jersey after like whatever it was, 3 a.m. or something. So he was kind of sh kind of shitty, but helped me the in the same way. So I'm sure people will describe the old me in that way. Like I was kind of nice and I'd help you out, but I was also kind of an asshole, <laughs> like grumpy sure. person. So. Well, I think that's what we're all like when we're active. You know, some some of us are nicer than others. But I think you've cemented the title. This is going to be called Behind the Dope. So thank you, Jessica, for coming through on Behind the Dope. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world I wonder if it do me any good Till I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just walk around my neighborhood. But I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. Wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I've ever had I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch the aeroplanes just pass me by I want to see a Learjet liner take a dive Just to show these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good, so bad Bad desires all I've ever had
Oh 